I didn't like the red hot chili peppers. Really? Why? And, well, when I was interviewing them, before the interview, we warned them, you know, this is live. <laughs> so try to keep your swearing to a minimum. <laughs> Hi, this is Erica M. And this is a very special shout out to Dan Hallett. You know, I love my fans. And that means, yes, Dan Hallett, I love you. This is Mostly Money, and I'm your host, Preet Banerjee. And on the show today, I'll be speaking with Canadian royalty. Erica M was one of the first much music VJs who spent 10 years captivating and influencing young Canadians. Young Canadians then, who today are my age. And every time I mention that, hey, I know Erica M., without a single exception, every single one of them physically grabs my arm and tells me how they were madly in love with her. 15 years ago, she founded Yummy Mummy Club, which connects brands with Canadian moms. In 2012, she became a pioneer yet again in branded content and social engagement with the launch of M&Co. More recently, she launched a new podcast called Reinvention of the VJ, which includes interviews with much music VJs like George Strombolopoulos, Rick the Temp, Amanda Walsh, and many more. And I came to know her from crossing paths on the professional speaking world. And I'm so delighted to have Erica on the show today. And her theme will be reinvention because she's absolutely an authority on it. And because it's something so many people are grappling with right now, both personally and professionally. So you're the perfect guest at the perfect time. Erica, welcome to the show. And you're the perfect host. So this is going to be the perfect show. Uh, you can't say something like that to me because I do not have the background to justify that praise, but I'll take it. I'll take it. I'm uh, sure you will. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to I talk about your new podcast, obviously, Reinvention of the VJ, because as I said, reinvention is such a strong theme in people's lives right now. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about how the VJ was invented in the first place. How did you get that gig? But as, Because it wasn't like something where, hey, we're looking for people with experience as VJs for music television. That didn't exist. You, you defined that genre. So how did that happen in the first place? Well, like most things, it takes a lot of effort behind the scenes. Everyone thinks, oh, you know, I think a lot of people think I slept with my boss or one <laughs> of the bosses. Honestly, oh, there's... There's a full conspiracy theory about that. Um, but the real story is when I was 16 years old, I had already decided I was going to work in the music business and managed to get on the radio at Shoma FM to be interviewed when I was 16 or no, I think I was 17 at that point. And so I, I spotted who the program director was at Shoma FM and when I went to see the Cars concert at the Montreal Forum, decked out in the latest and greatest new wave outfit, <laughs> I marched up to him. Hi, Rob Raid. Can I have a job at Shom? And he looked at me and I, he said, this is actually uh, time for me to be watching a band. But if you would like to call my assistant, we can talk about it. So I freaking showed up at Shom FM when I was 17 years old and asked him for a full-time job at Shom FM. And guess what he said? Of course he would say yes to you. How could he say no to you? He said no. Oh. <laughs> he said, listen, you're still in school. You can't work here full-time. But if you'd like, you can be my music librarian. What that means is you can have access to the radio station at any time your job would be to organize all the albums. There weren't even CDs at the time. Right. And keep all the records organized. And you get to be here. And you get to experience what it is to work at a radio station. Of course, I said yes. And all the kids at CJEP, where I was at school, said, like, how did you get the job? Because it was big news, right? It was, mm -hmm. It's the biggest rock radio station. And guess what I told them? I asked. Seriously, that's my theme. And you're going to see this reinvention theme. And I asked as sort of a partnership in approach to life, really. So when I was already working at the, at the radio station, I started working in clubs, DJing in punk bars. I was working at A&A and Sam the Record Man. I was managing bands. I was immersed 
in the music business. And then I got a job, uh, sorry, I didn't get a job. Then I went to university at Ottawa and I did my degree in communications. And right before I ended my time at university, I called up City TV and begged for a job at the new music. Moses Neimer happened to be coming to town for a CRTC hearing coming from Toronto to Ottawa, and he agreed to meet me. And I talked his ear off about my passion. He, I took him to my apartment. He saw my, you know, all my albums, and I was like, I really wouldn't shut up. And he agreed to give me a job answering the phones for the new music. So that's how I got my, my first sort of entree into City TV. And then while I was working at City TV, answering the phones and being the entertainment coordinator and working my way up, I was JD and Jeannie Becker's assistant. <laughs> I also worked part-time at the local cable company. I had called them up and asked, I said, hi, my name is Erica. Can I have a job hosting a show, an entertainment show? And the guy on the phone, his name is Willie Jong. He said, sure. Honestly, not a word of a lie. So I went down to the local community programming channel, McLean Hunter, and I started hosting a show there. I did that for two years, you know, for free. I volunteered. And then I made a demo tape. And then I got the job. So, okay. So there's something I have to ask you about here with the stature of Moses Neimer. How did you convince him to come? Uh, well, first of all, I didn't know about the stature of Moses Neimer, to be honest. Listen, I was, how old was I? I was 19 years old. And he... His wife was friends with my mom. Ah. So I just knew him as this, you know, Moses's husband. Like I didn't understand he was Moses Neimer. Right. <laughs> so that ignorance was very useful. But at the same time, I think even still today, I am absolutely fearless when I want something. I know that I can't let fear get in my way. And also, I remember that everybody is a person. He's a guy. He's like a, a, a person with one would assume a heart and an interest <laughs> in, you know, young talent. He runs a, a TV station. You know, one would assume that he'd be interested in finding new people who could fit with his vision. So I think in life, you have to be fearless because nobody is going to walk up to you and offer you anything except this particular podcast that you asked me to do. But <laughs> any other opportunity, I had to call and ask about. That takes quite a bit of courage to, to do something like that. But that, you know, let's talk about the transition from, all right, so now you're answering the phones. How do you go to being on air? Because that in itself is also a transition. You would expect that, you know, um, someone with experience in front of the camera would would get that opportunity. So how did you then take that next sort of fearless leap to say, I should be the one who's in front of a camera? Because especially at the time when there wasn't a lot of channels, there weren't a lot of big TV stars, that would take a lot of gumption to say, oh, yeah, that should definitely be me. How oh, did it that had to be me. Listen, I was... <laughs> I was the music curator in Montreal because I was the DJ in the Punk and New Wave bars. That's all I wanted. I never and still don't care about fame. I want to be an influence on your passions, on your vision in life. And not just in music and culture, but I am overtly loud about being kind and role modeling behavior that I think is important to make the world better. So I, I take that on myself. Why or how I made that transition was an interesting one because A, I was already hosting a show on cable. I had co uh, actually hosted a show in Montreal when I was DJing. Someone said to me, do you want to host a show that we're doing? It was called Muse Video. That was probably in 1979. It's mm -hmm. still, you can search it. It's somewhere on YouTube. And I just was like, oh my God, I love Susie and the Banshees so much. You really have to buy that album. I mean, I was already doing it. But what was interesting about City TV and Much Music was that they often hired internally. And we'll talk about that later when we do the conversation about my reinvention of the VJ show. I'm discovering so many interesting things about other people who were doing, have done similar jobs to me at Much Music. And there is a theme where there is a, a predisposition from Moses and his team 
to hire people who were already part of sort of our eco, uh, mm -hmm. who understood what much music was about and were passionate about music and culture, but didn't have experience at a, as a broadcaster. And Moses's incredible uh, insight was that you can teach broadcasting, but you can't teach passion. So if you look at the people who were on not just much music, but on city TV as well, the environmentalists, for example, were not broadcasters. They were environmental warriors who were given the access to microphone and camera and learned to tell stories in front of people. Because as you know, you're not a broadcaster by trade. You're Am I right? Like you, your experience Absolutely is right, yeah. different, but you've taught yourself. I mean, it doesn't take that much to be a great storyteller. It is hard to be a great listener, which you you are. But people are drawn to people who are authentically passionate and knowledgeable about something. And Moses knew firsthand that I lived the life. I walked the talk. And there weren't, when I went on the air, I was 23, there were not probably any girls or women in the country who had the background already that I had at that age. I went for it. I was focused. And when you, when you first went on air as a much music VJ, did you know right then and there that this format is going to explode? This is going to partly define an entire generation? Did you ever come to that realization? Was there a moment in time where you said, wow, I'm a really big deal? I had no idea. The weird thing was, Much Music was this shitty office with dirty desks scattered and old cameras, like the gear was shitty, and we really didn't have a lot of money. So internally, we were not treated, that would be the on-air people, were not really treated that much differently than the rest of the crew. Mm -hmm. Everybody had a function within the office, uh, my job was to be in front of the camera and tell the story, but I was really not much more important than the person doing audio because if the person who did audio didn't do their job well, no one could hear me. Like we were a really tight group and we were not allowed to have any airs or sense of self-importance about us. In fact, I was warned repeatedly, stupidly, I think, that I was easily replaced. That, that was probably the worst management style. And I said to myself, actually, when I worked there, I was like, why are they doing this to me when I am so passionately proud of working for this corporation and I'm basically working for them 24-7? Why would they tell me that? And in fact, it, it encouraged me to pull back more and more and start planting my own entrepreneurial seeds while working there. And I always said to myself, you know, if I ever ran my own business, I will treat my employees or the contractors or whoever they are 100% differently. I will tell them all the time how valued they are, how irreplaceable they are, because you can never replace one person because one person is completely different than somebody else. One person has unique skill sets, right? So you can never actually replace them. And that's why people worked for me. When I started my, my agency and my company years ago, some of the people still work for me. <laughs> there's something I want to go back to. So it sounds like I there's I know this... I talk a lot. I'm so sorry, but... Are you kidding? But... <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> so I know sorry. all my friends and listeners are going to say, listen, this should be a two-hour podcast. I'd love to hear Erica's voice. I think for a lot of people, it brings them back you know, to to that time in our lives when we were so formed by things around us. I remember watching much music. Everyone watched it after school, coming home. It was just a huge part of everyone's lives. But I want to talk about this this paradox. So, you know, on one hand, you talked about how the culture was really important uh, and, and what Moses' stamp was on. You find the passion, you can teach them, you know, the technical aspects of the job, but you need mm -hmm. people first. And then this management you know, style of saying to people, you can be, you could be replaced. That really seemed to go against it. So what triggered you to start thinking about leaving? Do you think that that messaging made you say, well, I need to start thinking about the next step because they're basically telling me that I'm replaceable. This 
presents a bit of a risk. You know, from an employee's perspective, that is not a great thing to hear. And so you said you started to plant these seeds about what was going to happen next. How did you plant those seeds, which initiated the next reinvention of Erica M? Well, I dabbled in entrepreneurism when I started a hat company. I I don't know if you know this, but I used to wear hats all the time at much, and it was really hard mm-hmm. to find good hats yep. because I was a trendsetter. So mm-hmm. when you're a trendsetter, it's hard to find the you things that you're looking for. Right. <laughs> so I did a few seasons of by, um, you know, designing, finding young designers, designing the hats, getting them. It was so cool getting them made, manufactured in Canada, in Toronto. We found hat manufacturers and then getting them shipped to my basement and then shipping them out to people and selling them. Like it was a fascinating experience. And I had some really great hats to wear for a long time. (laughs) So that was one of the things. I also started to do a lot of voiceovers. Mm -hmm. So I was starting to understand the world of advertising. Uh, Then I started a record label. Well, the problem was I actually quit. This is Can I tell you a good story? Of course you can. Okay. So in about 1989, I'd been on air for four years, and I found out that I was making significantly less money than the men. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, it made sense in terms of seniority, because I hadn't been a broadcaster for as long as them. I was younger than everybody at the time. However, I was getting more fan mail than a lot of the people, or at least as much. And I was becoming synonymous with the nation's music station. And I worked really hard. So I went into my boss's office and I was, you know, I had all the statistics about how I was getting more mail than people, etc. And I offered a job. Uh, sorry, I, I asked him for a raise. And my boss said to me, I heard you're really difficult to work with. Yeah, I could see you're rolling your eyes because I was like, what the fuck did you say to me? I, my head, you know that emoji of exploding head? Yes. That was me. <laughs> right. And I said to him in a very professional way, fuck off. <laughs> and I left. Oh, sorry. I said, fuck off. I quit. And I stormed out. I was like, what the hell was that? I am working my ass off proudly. Without a, a, a moment of complaint for your company and for me, because I love my job, and that's the, that's the way you reply to me, so I quit. I turned off my phone, and I called up my friend Tim Thorny first before I turned off my phone, crying, Tim, I quit my job. He goes, what? Emmy, what are you doing? I said, I told him what happened, and he said, good for you. He said, can you write a song, songwriter? And he was a jingle producer. And I said, I don't know, as I wiped my tears. He said, come over, we'll try and write a song. Well, we ended up actually being able to craft quite a good song. He's an amazing songwriter. And we ended up becoming songwriting partners for 10 years. And we started a record label, and we won Juno Awards and Country Music Awards and SoCan Awards. Anyway, fast forward to four days later, I turned my phone back on. And my boss called, the other boss. He's like, Erica, come on, come back. They're freaking out, right? Because everyone's asking, where's Erica M? I said, I'm not coming until you give me the raise that I asked for. He goes, we'll give you the raise, come back. So I started a new career as a songwriter and got the raise that I deserved. So you were able to start this new uh, sort of revenue stream, this new passion, and you also went back to being on air at Much Music with the raise that that you uh, had initially asked for. So that was certainly like pulling teeth, negotiating the hard way. And again, a lot of people may not have the the same level of, of um, tenacity, gumption, tenacity yeah. mm-hmm. to to uh, negotiate for themselves. So so when it comes to your advice for people when they are in a situation where they feel, you know, I should be making more. What do you have like a, a, a prescription as to how to tackle that conversation with, with a boss? I actually went to a therapist to understand behavior. So the next time that I was in a situation like that, because I didn't like my reaction, I don't think that fuck off is actually a useful way of dealing with it, but it was... Right. How a 27-year-old 
responded, pure emotion. Mm-hmm. You need to be in control of your emotions and you need to learn how to not be defensive. So when c- someone comes at you with something like that, I'd say, that's an interesting perspective. Can you tell me where you got that information from? You have to be calm and you have to be able to respond, even though you think that person is the biggest jerk and you let them talk. And you might even say, you know what? If you can provide me some of that documentation, I'm going to go away and look at it and I'll come back to you. Yeah, because it sounds like bullshit what he said. Like it that sounds bullshit. like that sounds it, like something that he would never say to a man. Thank you. Um, but I also think in life, um, you need to control your emotions, especially women. And not that women are more emotional, but they're judged right. on how they respond with or without their emotions. So I've learned to be a man. My, I run my business like I'm a man. Someone brought me a mug recently and it says on it, don't fuck with me. <laughs> so if someone comes at me with something that is irrational or something that irks me, I will respond in a non-defensive way. I will say, I hear what you're saying. I need to think about that and I'll get back to you. Now, interestingly enough, CBT therapy um, explained to me that we experience strong emotions for about 20 to 40 seconds and then it goes away so when you're in a position where you're feeling triggered especially at work but also in life you just need to walk away be calm walk away and i will guarantee you that you'll have a clear head in Mm -hmm. a few minutes and it's at that point you're going to respond so if you get an email that is triggering you you go what the fuck are they talking what the fuck just go, calm down. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not responding. And then take the time and respond in a non-confrontational way. Always. If you're confrontational, it just goes up and up and up. And suddenly you're in a war. You need to find a way to defuse and win. So not give in, defuse and find a way to win and negotiate in a non-defensive, open way. I hear what you're saying. It's such great advice. I know thinking of the times where I've let my emotions in the heat of a moment get the better of my responses. And anytime I've seen that with people around me, you've basically boxed yourself into a corner. There are very few moves you can make once you've passed, once you've crossed the Rubicon, right? But if you can pause and come back later, you can be a lot more strategic. It's like, you know, it's like anything. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but you don't have to make a decision in the moment. And if you take the time to diffuse and then come back when you've had time to think about it, it is so much more effective for people. We're obsessed with returning emails or when the phone rings, answering it. Don't answer the phone. You're in control. We are in control of our own lives. Your boss is not in control of you. Your coworkers are not in control of you. You control it. Be smart as to how you um, speak to people and how, how you communicate. Be smart. Use technology wisely. Use social media wisely. It is, it's, in your, it's in your hands to control. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You hear a lot about supply chains these days, because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood, and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As you mentioned, um, there was this period, um, I think it was 94 is when you left much music, and 
you really were a Renaissance woman. <laughs> you you wrote songs, plays, you wrote books, children's books. Uh, as you mentioned, you won a bunch of awards, Canadian Country Music Awards, uh, SoCan's Junos. You were in RoboCop. <laughs> yes, I was. So you acted for a while, and you were in RoboCop, the TV series, not uh, not the movie. But that was pretty. Was that shot in Toronto, or did you have yeah. to go? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I did it while I was working. I think I was working at much at the same time, or it was right around the same time. Yeah, right. And uh, so there's a bunch of different things that you you had your hands in. But then I want to talk about your next sort of reinvention into being a sort of, you know, uh, full-fledged entrepreneur and sort of putting everything together and also defining, I think, the next period of your life, and that is yummymummyclub.ca. So that was, I think, 15 years ago now, exactly. 2006. Yep. So when when did you have the idea to start this business and why? Well, the difference between what I was doing in those earlier years after much was I was a contractor. I was an independent contractor that was sort of for hire. Some of it was entrepreneurial. Some of it I was um, being hired, but I really wasn't in control of my destiny. Then I had kids and my world exploded and I had a really hard time adjusting to motherhood because I'm type A. I like to make things happen and kids don't listen. (laughs) You know, you say, buddy, go to bed. And they're like, no, buddy, I got to do work. They're like, no. <laughs> so it was it was really hard for me to adjust. And uh, But I knew that what turns me on is listening to my passion. And my family had become my passion, trying to understand parenting because I had no fucking clue what I was doing. I didn't have a lot of friends who had kids. I, most of my friends were working women and they hadn't gone down that road. Even though when I had my kids, I was old. I was 39 when I had my son. So I was like out of my depth. So I started working at, I I looked for jobs. First of all, no one wanted to hire me because I was fat and old. 100% telling you my career was over. So that's number one. I was dead. No one wanted to hear from me. No one wanted to talk to me. So I looked on like the media job search and I found the job of a reporter or a writer for What's Up Kids magazine. And they hired me. So my job was to write stories about um, issues relating to parenting. And I loved it because I was basically learning about what I was most interested in, much like music. And the reason why I left much music was because I got tired of it. Mm-hmm. I was now really immersed in this world. And um, I wanted to find ways to tell more stories. But nobody was talking about the reality of being a mother today which is, it's shitty. It's hard. Everybody says, oh, I'm doing great. Like, well, why am I struggling? Why is this so hard? I started, um, I came up with this idea for a TV show called Yummy Mummy. And I was at an event and a woman came up to me and gave me her business card. It was all scrunched up with someone else's name written on it. And she (laughs) said, call me. And I was like, yeah, you're 12. Anyway, I did call her because you always go after every opportunity. And sure enough, she was sourcing ideas for a uh, production company. And I pitched them the idea of Yummy Mummy, which would you know celebrate and commiserate the roller coaster of modern motherhood, and they bought it. So I suddenly had a TV series. It was broadcast on Life Network and syndicated on Discovery Health around the world. I wrote the show. I hosted it. I co-produced it. And the show was cool because it was kind of shot against a green screen. So it was like Pee Wee Herman's Playhouse combined <laughs> right. with a like a lifestyle show. And you can still buy episodes for 99 cents on Amazon Prime. How crazy is that? <laughs> so that was 2003 to 2005. And when the show ended, I wasn't done. I was like, oh, my God, I'm building community here. Mm-hmm. And so I started this little tiny website called yummymummyclub.ca, which was sort of a supposed to be a continuation of the TV show, but there was no business model for this. So I was doing it really because I needed friends. I was trying to find a community of like-minded women. So I built about 300 pages and it started to pick up momentum. Remember, there were, there were barely mommy blogs at the time. This was ahead of mommy blogs. Mm-hmm. 
And PR people started to come to me and saying, you know, hey, if you write about us, we'll give you a mop. Right. And I'd like, fuck off. <laughs> and so I, I came up with this one line, which is, what's your budget? And they were like, what? Yeah, what's your budget? I'm working here. If you'd like me to connect your product with moms, what's your budget? And that was when the light went off. And I was like, I can work with brands to tell their stories in meaningful ways and connect them to my audience. Started hiring people. It started to grow. And we became the leaders in branded content back in 2007 was when my first big project with Fuji Films launched, where we sent out a, we had created a integrated contest. Uh, we were on Twitter. We started spreading the information on Twitter. We had a newsletter sent out. We had a whole bunch of articles about how to take photographs of your family brought to you by Fuji. Um, that was through Apex PR. I'll never forget it because when your first project is sold, it uh, you know you build it and then they will come. Mm -hmm. And I was able to use a case study to show other brands that moms loved what we were doing and that they were they were uh, passing it on and it became semi viral, etc. And so my business was was born. And then we we launched M and Co, which is an agency because people thought that we were just a website, but no, we are in fact an agency that connects brands with moms. And then I had five hundred families, each who had mom blogs or Twitter accounts, and they started to extend and amplify our programs. And they were way before there was such a thing as influencers. Mm -hmm. So I I basically started the first influencer agency back in 2008. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's strange. You know, 2008 doesn't sound like it was such a long time ago, but in in the in the space of time that influencer marketing has grown, it seems like that's only been around for like 5 years. But you again were trailblazing, you know, this this whole industry. So I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the work that M&Co has done, because I, I was intrigued by a report that you put out called The Current COVID State of Mom. And, you know, for, for any of the brands who are out there listening, um, you know, this, this survey breaks down what Canadian moms are doing, how they're handling the pandemic. And I think it makes sense to continue our theme of reinvention, this time more focused on the brand perspective. This should not be news to them, but things have changed. Consumer preferences have changed dramatically in the last year. Things like, just look at fitness, Peloton bikes. Who would have thought a $3,000 stationary bike that you have to pay a monthly subscription for would, would blow up? The lobby of my condo is basically an Amazon warehouse. Everyone has shifted to so much more online consumption. So, you know, brands that thrive are the ones that can figure out these shifts. And you have done research to see what what is the state of mind for for moms and how should brands be thinking about what they're doing in light of this new information. So I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about the survey and sort of the big findings that you were surprised by. Well, I would have to say that I wasn't that surprised because my agency is run by moms for moms. Right. So we're all living it. What it did, it just confirmed that I'm not alone, that what I'm going through, other moms all over the country are going through. 700 moms replied, and the results really spoke loudly. 85% of, or sorry, 78% of moms said that they're worried about their family's mental and physical health. 42% of moms say they're not having sex at all. Uh, I think it's seven, I don't have the numbers right in front, but something like 73% of moms say that they have uh, very little me time, alone mm -hmm. time. Um, so I imagine that was not, I mean, they probably have very little me time pre-pandemic, but I imagine that the stress and the additional time management required to coordinate you know, school closures, daycare closures, um, meal prep, all that stuff has been added to the plate with the extra challenge of time management, but extra burden as well, because we see that that women and moms 
take on more of the burden with what's happened with the pandemic. In fact, there was just the December jobs report out of the U.S., 140,000 jobs lost. And it was the National Women's Law Center that said all of them belong to women. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that only 30% of women said that they're worried about paying their bills or that it's their top concern. I think that number is going to rise Mm -hmm. in the coming weeks and months as more and more businesses continue to stay closed. And also women are giving up their jobs now to stay home because their kids are not going to school. Right. Someone has to be home. So it's a, a really challenging time for women. Um, the consumption of junk food and wine is up um, 70% amongst women, so which means their weight is going to be going up, which is not a surprise. The pandemic weight that I'm, as you can see, you're looking at me now, I'm, I'm, I look jolly now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you look beautiful as ever. <laughs> Thank you. I am you know, also dealing with all the ramifications of being locked down with my family. Women are saying that the stress of preparing meals every day is rising. I think it's 60% of moms say that they're more stressed at mealtime, that they're more challenged to find what they're going to prepare for their families. Like these are huge um, daily stresses that moms are contending with. They're also eating out significantly less So in terms of CPG companies, hello, moms need you right now. Right. And they need recipes. They need ways to prepare meals that are exciting, fast, and inexpensive. So those are the kinds of things that, um, and also junk food. (laughs) They're looking for junk food. And if you're in the wine or alcohol business, moms are looking for some fun. And I think that fun is, you know, okay. Let me, let me just sort of go back a little bit. One of the reasons why we prepared this survey is that a lot of brands are afraid to market right now because they don't want to misstep. They don't want to, you know, say something that will land the wrong way mm-hmm. because moms are really in not a good state of mind right now. So that I, hopefully this survey, in fact, people can get it. They can, they can just uh, email me uh, or go to mnco and ehmco.com and they can just go there and we'll send you the full report mm-hmm. because I think it's really important, you know, on behalf of all women that I don't want brands to alienate their audience or their consumers by really not understanding the stress and anxiety that they're dealing with and also not understanding the opportunities mm-hmm. that are there for them to market to moms. They may not understand that women are looking for new ways of preparing meals or we ask them if you could if if a genie could uh, offer you one wish what would it be and the majority of people said a house cleaner meal prep and a tutor for their kids so boom 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 if you're working in those industries there are opportunities how to clean your house more easily you know um all the the meal companies hello Moms are looking for help right now, and if you are in the world of tutoring or helping to educate kids in any way with any product or service, strike now. Yeah, it sounds like if you're looking for a campaign and you want intelligence on what that campaign should be focused on, um, visit uh, Erica's company's website. So a lot of people may not know the spelling of your last name, right? It's just kind of like share. You know, it's just people know the name. (laughs) There's Erica M., it's not M, it's E-H-M. And so the website for the company, if they want to get that report, is? E-H-M-C-O.com. I, I want to talk about uh, a few other things. And I know that you know a lot of my friends will have questions about um, some of the highlights at, at Much Music. There is one thing I want to ask you about. So I know a lot of people talk about that, that famous Kurt Cobain interview. And it was conducted, I think it was nine months before his death. You you wrote a blog post that talked about kind of like the behind the scenes, which I thought was such an interesting read. And I recommend people go there and they can uh, find that information on your personal blog, I think. Yeah. 
And you mentioned that at the time you wrote the blog piece, at the the video of that interview had gone viral with five million views. Do you know how many people have have viewed that now? Because it's significantly higher than that. How many? It's about to hit ten million views. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and wow. what's what's? I, I had no idea at that time that would be the interview that defined my career. Right. Right. Well, no I think what was so different about that interview is how disarming you were because your your first question this biggest rock star in the world first question is about books and immediately you see that that interview is going to take a different path than what was in his mind i think so uh i i do a book show in much where um talk to you do what a book show oh. talk to different people about fave books that you've read and how it's inspired you or what you learned from it or something like that. Mm-hmm. So do you have a book that um, that comes back to you every once in a while? Yeah, well, I've read Perfume by Patrick Suskin about 10 times in my life and uh, I can't stop reading it. It's like something that's just stationary in my pocket all the time. It just doesn't leave me and every time I'm bored, like I'm on an airplane or something, I read it over and over again because I'm a hypochondriac and it just affects me. It makes me want to cut my nose off. What's the book about? It's about this um, perfume apprentice in in um, France at the turn of the century, and he um, he uh, is just disgusted basically with all humans, and he just can't get away from humans. So he goes on this trek, this uh, walk of death, where he just he goes into the rural areas where there's you know woods all over the place and the small villages, and and he only travels by night, and um, he. He just every time he smells human, like a fire from a far off way, you know, he'll um, he'll just get really disgusted and hide, and he just tries to stay away from people. I can relate to that. <laughs> Do you ever use what you read in any of your songs? As a matter of fact, I use that very story in Scentless Apprentice. Yeah. And it was a compelling interview to watch. If people haven't seen it, and I've seen it, you know, back in the day, and I saw it when you posted your blog post, and I'm probably going to watch it again because it's so engaging. And I imagine it was for him as well. And you, you, you talked about, um, you know, your thoughts during the interview is like, oh, you know, I thought it was going to be this big ego, and he's a sweetheart. So, what was your most memorable, in a bad way, interview that you had with an artist or band? I talk a lot about this. Uh, I really didn't like my interview with, or not, I didn't like my interview. I didn't like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Really? Why? Well, when I was interviewing them before the interview, we warned them, you know, this is live. So try to keep your swearing to a minimum. You know, it's rock and roll and everything, but we have a, a license from the CRTC and you're not really supposed to swear. Now remember, this was 30 odd years ago. Yeah. So a lot has changed in the world of broadcast. And for those who are younger than me, you may not know that you weren't allowed to swear on television ever. Right. It was not okay. You could use lose your license. So when I was interviewing them, they started to swear in the middle of it. And when we went to break, because it was a long interview, when we went to break, I said to them, guys, we can lose our license or something to that effect. Please don't swear. Sorry. They were so nice. Sorry. Sorry. Well, we won't do that again. Like we get it. We get it. We go back on and they went right back into- They were just messing with you. Yeah. I'm a rock star. Right. And so I was like, fuck you. I didn't say that. But in my mind, I was like, fuck you, this interview's over. And you could see they're like, what? But no. <laughs> and the reason why I always cite this as one of my least favorite, because other people have been less forthcoming and they've been boring or whatever, but they were fake. Who is the real person? There were. I saw two different people. I saw a group of people who were in front of the camera, and then I saw a group of people who were very different when the camera wasn't on. I don't know which was the real one, but I didn't like the fact that they were absolutely inauthentic and they were full of shit. And I can't abide people who are full of shit. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's an awful story to hear. Um, 
I can only imagine what it would have been like in the moment because I have limited experience with, you know, broadcasting live. Um, I, um, I was asked to do some fill-in radio hosting on uh, News Talk 1010 for uh, Jim Richards. So I'll do like a week here or there when he's on vacation. And it's a nerve-wracking thing. And, you know, I benefit from the, there's a seven-second delay or whatever the, the delay is, and a producer is in control of that. But when you have someone who, you know, you've dedicated a block of time live in a schedule, and they decide to completely be disrespectful, and then you have got to run out that clock, right? There's only so much tap dancing you can do. Uh, that is awful. Like just, I, I sympathize with that. Like that just uh, makes my toes curl. I think, first of all, people who are watching are rooting for the host yeah. to be in control and to own it. People, I think, are very uncomfortable when the host feels powerless. That's probably why, you know, when we were watching uh, the debates with the the presidents, the future presidents. Oh, yes. And everybody was mortified at how Trump overrode the moderators. And everyone was yelling at the moderators, you need to do more. That's our job Mm -hmm. as the host is to literally control the conversation. Now, that doesn't mean control it in the sense as overtake it or be overbearing. For example, when I interviewed Duran Duran, it was complete chaos. But I... Me and uh, the lead singer, Simon LeBon, we would have these sort of, he would look at me while he was spraying me with water or about to throw (laughs) cake at me or something to make sure that I was okay. And I looked at him and I sort of nodded and smiled. And so it was not out of control. I was fine. You had that trust. That's right. And I knew this is good TV. Yeah. Yeah. Which is different than it being out of control and that the guest is doing what the host doesn't want or what the station doesn't want. And so I'm very comfortable in any circumstances to say, that's it. I think being a parent, it probably helps now. (laughs) You're done. Stop. That's it. (laughs) Um, All right. We'll we'll leave it there. But um, as you know, every guest on this podcast gets um, the last minute or two to provide a commercial for anything that they want to promote. Now, the, the challenge with you is you've got a lot of things, a lot of irons in the fire, but the floor is yours. Um, who do you want to send your message to, your commercial to, and where do you want to direct them? Well, I think it's less of a commercial and a reminder about the reinvention of the VJ podcast that I launched uh, recently. During the lockdown, I was able to contact a whole bunch of people who used to work at Much Music and do a, uh, a, a really personal reconnection with each of them. Now, some of them I'd never met before, uh, but a lot of the people I sort of grew up with. Mm-hmm. So to go back to that time to discover how they landed their jobs at Much, what their feelings were and memories were that may have been different or the same as me, which validated a lot of my sort of insecurities and um, issues that I had from back in the day, like, oh, you too? Me too. And then to follow their lives after to see if much was actually helpful or a hindrance in moving forward in their careers to date. Because all of us, I mean, have, it's almost 20 to 30 years for most people, have had interesting lives after the fact. So, finding that the reaction has been pretty amazing. A lot of um, emotion from people listening because it triggers a lot of the stuff from their childhoods or their their teen years. And you really get to learn people, uh, learn what makes people tick. And also there is a secondary, which to me was almost more important, piece of reinvention where we all get to learn what it takes to reinvent. Because as you said at the top of our conversation, Many of us are going through really tough times right now and being forced to reinvent in a variety of ways. And hopefully this show will give you some little insights um, how other people have managed to pivot their careers. Yeah, no, I think it is worthwhile listening um, 
and again, the title is perfect, Reinvention of the VJ, because this this genre, you guys were the trailblazers, and then that format completely changed, right? Yeah. It, it used to be, um, you know, music videos on music television stations. Now it's not, right? You, 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 it, it has transformed how we consume that music, uh, different mediums and what have you, but everyone has had to face... Uh, who's been a guest on that podcast, a reinvention of themselves. Some of it was forced. Some of it was, you know, more endogenous. They decided to reinvent themselves, even though they didn't necessarily need to. But the lessons there are are applicable to a wide variety of people, not just people in, you know, music entertainment. Well, what's interesting is if you consider why a lot of people eventually left, is there was a shift in technology. Right. Because as much music um, evolved, so did YouTube. Mm -hmm. And the value that much music brought um, diminished as people became intrigued by this new platform where they had videos on demand. But I think what happened is they got those videos on demand, but realized that what much music really brought was the curation of those videos. And so I think people are struggling right now to find where do I get my those stories where do i get the background and that's i think where a lot of people are missing those days of much music it's the personality and the insights and the knowledge from the hosts that makes that make those videos even better it's so it's such a good point you know one of the things that i've noticed when i'm consuming news is you can get news on demand anytime, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. So for the nightly broadcast, I don't find the value as much as what happened. But where I find the real value is, tell me why this is important. When they do the panels that talk about, you know, politics or whatever, and they tell you, okay, so this happened, but here's the backstory you don't know, and this is why it's so relevant. So that analysis, the curation, in this case of news, to help distill what does this mean to you, why is it important, is change the way I consume news based on before, which was, you know, uh, again, you didn't have these competing sources of news. So you kind of come in knowing the headlines, but now you want to know, well, tell me about what happens beneath those headlines. And but I think- what, what's interesting, though, is that curation now is also slanted. Yes. More so than before. Yes. Those large companies each seem to have an agenda or point of view. So we are now having to understand this panel is on which network, which already has sort of stated their affinity to a certain point of view. And I think back in the day, it was uh, far more nonpartisan. Right. Yeah, I, that's a great point because there are panels where it's not balanced. It's and not balanced. so the value in having you know, a balanced presentation of ideas is important. This could be a whole other podcast, but uh, <laughs> we'll, like I said, we'll we'll leave it there. I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, to join me on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I could talk forever. <laughs> <laughs>